Hello and welcome to Policy Pathways, a new podcast focusing on the policy challenges of food, land and water systems transformation. The project is brought to you by the CGIR's National Policies and Strategies Initiative and is facilitated by the International Water Management Institute, IMI. My name is Chavi Sachdev. I'm a journalist from Mumbai, India. Today, we're talking about the National Policies and Strategies Initiative Policy Coherence Report on India. Joining me are Nitin Bassi from the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, or CEEW, and lead author Archisman Mitra from the International Water Management Institute, UMI, Delhi. I am also very pleased to welcome Parijat Kosh, Research and Knowledge Management Team Coordinator at the Professional Assistance for Development Action, or Pradhan. Welcome to you all. Starting with you, Archisman, and to give our listeners some kind of context, where is India currently in terms of population, resources, and its dependence on the agrarian economy? So India is one of the most populous countries in the world that we all know. It has around one-sixth of the world population. Uh, in terms of land and water, if we see, it's probably slightly above 2% of the total land resources of the world is in India and uh, 4% of the freshwater resources uh, is in India. So in terms of, uh, uh, and basically the primary objective is to provide for food security of uh, of this huge population. And from that context, it becomes necessary to uh, use the scarce resources quite uh, uh, efficiently. And so that's one aspect of uh, the agriculture's importance. But the other part is also it's very important for the economy. So it in terms of GDP and, bo- and also in terms of employment, I think around 20%, it contributes uh, to around 20% for on India's GDP. And about 40% of the uh, employment comes uh, from uh, agriculture still. Uh, so, and it will be even much higher in the rural uh, rural uh, sector. So, from that context, uh, it becomes uh, very important to for agricultural growth first for food security, then from income and uh, uh, employment for the, the population, while uh, sustainably using the resources. And India also has this big challenge of scale. We are very vast. We've got thirty-two million square kilometers from north to south. And there are massive geographic variations within this landmass, along with a very large population. How much of a challenge is this for policymakers who are working on the food, land and water systems? So my take on this is this comes under the state list in terms of legislative uh, legislative uh, angle. Right, because India has a federal system, right? We've got one national policy, but then it's diverted into each state to implement it as best they can. Exactly. So in in a very simplistic way, each region can sort of make their own policies suited to their uh, local needs. Uh, but there are huge externalities that happen. Any policy in one state will have externalities that happen that affects the other state. Uh, one example would be, for example, the food production system in Punjab and Haryana is affecting the air pollution in neighboring states. That's a quite a hot uh, topic currently so uh, so so there is need for a central uh, schemes and policies that sort of take care of these externalities and there it becomes challenging to sort of uh, devise these policies that can 
tackle this very huge diversity within the country. So that would be my take on why it becomes very challenging. I think I think what you asked is really pertinent. I mean, we have different agroecological zones. Uh, area necessary which have rich water endowments are not the one which are agricultural prosperous as well. Uh, because there are different consideration. Uh, economy is a consideration. Land availability is a consideration. And resources which are available with the farmers are consideration. And there's also been change, right? A water-rich state in the past may now be water-scarce and the crops that they were growing back then may not be viable now. Exactly. So given this context, uh, you know, it is a real challenge for policymakers actually, uh, you know, to devise, a, let's say, a single policy uh, cutting across food, land and water space, uh, which might yield desired results in, uh, you know, each and every agroecology that we talk about. So what we need to do, we of course need to uh, tailor made some of those policies when it comes to implementation. So the broader guidelines the policy uh, can provide, uh, the implementation has to be tailor made to the local context, uh, looking at resource endowment, looking at the economy, uh, looking at the demography. Uh, and I think this will go a long way in making the implementation side of it coherent as well. Nitin, maybe you could speak to us about the historical approaches that we have um, had towards policy development in the different sectors since independence. Because the federal system has existed since India gained independence in 1947 and the agrarian policies were very important and that was our big agenda with the Green Revolution. So then let me ask you historically, what has been the situation? Have the national policies been cohesive with state policies? What have been the historic approaches and have they helped or hindered India's development? Before Green Revolution, you know, it was like uh, the, the narration was ship to mouth that, you know, we were uh, importing food grains and then we were, uh, you know, trying to address the food security. Green Revolution in that ways uh, was really uh, a kind of a path breaking development at that point of time. And just for the context for our listeners, this was in the 50s and the 60s that we set an agenda. This was late 1960s, uh, you know, when we, uh, you know, uh, went ahead with the Green Revolution, where the focus was given on, uh, uh, you know, the, the different varieties of uh, crops, especially paddy and, uh, you know, even wheat, uh, which can be uh, taken up at scale, uh, give us better yield. And a lot of focus was also done on the irrigation development at a local scale. So that is where the groundwater development came into picture. Uh, you know, a lot of incentives, subsidies were provided to the farmers uh, to, uh, you know, go for uh, groundwater-based irrigation. Now, that was the time when we had not developed our resources and, uh, you know, we needed to produce more food. But then there was a pressure on the natural resources, uh, be it land, be it water and be it, uh, you know, uh, resources which are required to produce energy. Uh, with this you know, there was then need to relook at these sectors, especially the sectors which are linked to each other. And uh, as a report deals with, so these like uh, these sectors for us uh, were water, land and food. And uh, that is where our work takes a lot of importance uh, that, you know, how uh, we can bring in those nuances, how we can uh, bring in the integration of uh, these three resources and ensure that the future development in the sector uh, goes as per uh, the the natural resource endowment that we have. And we don't keep on breaching the carrying capacity of the environment. Interesting. Harijat, if I can turn to you, 
Your organization, Pradhan, works closely with grassroots rural communities. Could you give us an outline uh, briefly of what you do? Yeah, sure, thank you. Uh, Pradhan works in seven states of Central India, which is mostly uh, Central Indian plateau area. And this is one of the poorest regions. And uh, we, in general, facilitate uh, marginalized rural communities, especially women, to organize themselves into collectives earn a decent living and support their families. And uh, we also help them access government programs and other entitlements uh, as citizens. And most importantly, though all this, uh, through all this, uh, we want to change their self-view from being, an, uh, being insignificant to a capable and worthy human being. And we focus primarily on women in these regions because uh, they are at the intersection of class, caste and gender, we all know, and therefore probably the most vulnerable. And to achieve this, we recruit well-educated uh, young professionals to work alongside people uh, in, this, uh, in these villages. And they come from diverse fields, such as management, engineering, agriculture, social sciences. And uh, they are chosen as much for their empathy as for their wisdom and expertise. And, and where do they plug in, these um, young people who are working with you? Yeah, they actually, they are based at uh, block level and instead of delivering uh, services or solutions, the, our focus is to uh, help the women and the villagers to develop their own skills and decide their own priorities. Uh, they learn to uh, experience how to improve their livelihood and to access the information they need uh, to engage effectively with government and other people in power. And we have seen that uh, when people develop a sense of agency, regardless of their caste and gender, they can assert their rights and speak up for themselves. And uh, we aim for a holistic and positive change in their social, psychological, as well as uh, economic condition so that uh, they can take charge of their lives and engage with the world around them. And do they do this by also working with uh, civil society organizations and the government to um weigh in on policies and development? Yeah, yeah, sure. We partner with uh, other civil society organizations in that particular area and the government, various government departments and the uh, funding agencies and uh, those who are act, uh, acting in this sector. Um, because partnership can only bring in uh, a kind of ecosystem change, uh, which we are aiming for. Not only those who are in the village, but other uh, people around them, all the actors need to also be concerned about and under, be understanding about the situation and act their own parts. So a lot of the people you work with uh, slip through the gaps when it comes to policy. Um, I may, Maybe it's fair to say that based on the fact that so many live below the poverty line and they don't really have a complete access or fair access to food, land and water systems. Uh, how do you feel like the policy that would affect these communities uh, has been implemented or could change? Uh, to some extent, uh, there are, uh, they have, although there are a lot of good examples where relevant policies have been facilitated, visible changes on the ground, but I think still there are a huge scope for improvement at the level of uh, policy, especially at the implementation part. And is that because of the diversity we were speaking about, or is it also to do with things like the changing realities on the ground, which is that climate systems now or the agroeconomic situation now is different than it used to be perhaps a generation or two generations ago? I think it's both. The situation is changing, the resource conditions are changing and 
not only the natural resource condition but also everything else uh, changing and based on the changing scenario there has to be uh, policies which can adapt these uh, changes and help the people to uh, live a decent uh, living so presumably a research project like the nps report that's just been launched is something that you would welcome absolutely uh, evidences and insights on why these gaps exist what can be done done to improve the situation will be a huge contribution to mitigate uh, the gaps at the policy level and we are uh, we're working at a in a very complex society and bringing about change is not at all easy so such research will help in all the actors to acknowledge and understand the complexity and uh, probably importance of understanding the nuanced picture therefore coming up with better policies and solutions it may also help in better implementation of the policies uh, policies as i was uh, sharing and facilitate convergence among various government bodies and other uh, relevant actors because i think uh, convergence is a very important factor which uh, there is a gap in the present uh, situation. Interesting. We're going to come back to the point of convergence and also coherence in a minute. But for now, let's try to place ourselves in the present and look at the NPS India report itself, which was launched in late January. At the launch event, there were some introductory remarks from Dr. Arabind Kumar Padhi, who's the Principal Secretary at the Department of Agriculture and Farmers Empowerment in the Government of Odisha, which is a state in the East. So let's have a listen to some of his comments. at the outset i thank the cew niti ayog uh, the imi and and others for giving me this opportunity to share about the sustainable and climate resilient uh, food systems uh, and resilient food systems uh, if i take the example of odisha in the last 50 years uh, between 1970 to 2020 only 3 years uh, were uh, completely normal and that means uh, either flood or cyclone or drought have occurred uh, in each of the years uh, in addition uh, uh, especially for odisha uh, climate change projections uh, done by the icar uh, crida so that frequency of dry spells uh, will increase in the coming years so adoption of climate resilient crops with suitable climate resilient uh, uh, framework is uh, very imperative or imminent uh, research also shows uh, that switch to different crop types and shifting of the cropping area are seen as adaptations with a uh, transformative uh, purpose, uh, 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 potential so right off the bat dr padi is addressing the number one issue that all countries are facing right now which is climate change nitin archisman you co-authored the nps india report how would you say climate change has shaped your findings and your suggestions and perhaps you can expand with some specific examples given that changes in climate will be different in different areas it will affect different sectors differently you know be it uh, the hydrological cycle uh, be it the crops that are being taken be it the amount of precipitation uh, that will happen uh, the changes to the uh, crop water demand uh, that would be again driven uh, uh, through the climate variability and change it is important that we start thinking about this integration we start coming about the policies which consider this nexus of the three systems plus the climate change and variability and uh, if you if one looks at our report that is why we have chosen policies schemes programs that are implemented in these phases at national level uh, but i would also like to flag considering the climate variability and change angle 
going forward we are also going to do deep dive into uh, different states of india one of them is odisha uh, which is in the eastern side of india uh, which where the agroecology is uh, more about uh, you know rich in water endowment but in terms of uh, land holding with the farmers uh, you know it is lesser and the other state that we are choosing is rajasthan uh, which is in the western side of india where the natural water resource endowment is lower but the availability of land is higher uh so that is how you know we are going to inbuilt those uh, climate related concerns more uh, but definitely the national level assessment that we have done uh it it provides us the platform uh, to take this research forward and apply it in a more granular scale and do deep dive in specific states that represent different agroecologies so what you're trailing here is future research and future reports which is really good but let's think about how policymakers might make use of the current nps report we have to hand the report is focused on finding solutions for policy coherence and this is something that parijat brought up earlier too but archisman could you explain for our listeners what policy coherence means and also what we mean by convergence in this context convergence can be uh, understood in the sense that suppose two different departments are working together uh, towards similar goals or complementary goals so their resources uh, the manpower etc can be sort of uh, synergies can be found and it can be it can be done more efficiently so that's sort of leveraging those uh, those win win situations that exist and often uh, this sort of interdepartmental coordination uh, convergence these are sort of limited uh limits the policy coherence uh, uh dialogue what we do in this report i think is bring a much broader framework of looking into uh policy coherence it's not ours is not the exclusive or exhaustive list of how we want to look at policy coherence but we sort of use uh, uh five different lenses to look at policy coherence So my understanding of policy coherence is that policies are often developed in silos it could be the vertical of what they're doing like a labor policy or a seeds policy or a water policy or across states and that's a different kind of silo because even that may not be completely applicable across so is that what you're trying to address with this of course that's one of the starting point of the report but if if what i'm trying to say is that we sort of use different uh, criteria of policy coherence that sort of is the core of our report this framework of policy coherence we use five lenses through which we analyze each policy and whether they are coherent or not part of it is what you are saying that whether these are developed in silos whether different departments are talking between them whether they are using their resources efficiently or not but there are other things whether this is consistent with broader developmental goals is it being inclusive uh, is it is it is the policy the way it is developed designed is it uh, flexible to changing circumstances and our argument is that all of these contribute toward coherent policies i think what archiswan uh, uh, has already said it it actually provides a really nice uh, you know brief of what we do in this report you know through this analysis the idea is that how we can reduce the trade offs that one policy can have in other area 
Now, for example, uh, uh, let me give you an example from, let's say, one of the policies that India came up with. So there is a the, there is a policy uh, that you know we need to replace uh, the existing uh, diesel operated and electric operated irrigation pumps with the solar irrigation pump. Now, which is a very noble policy when it comes to reducing the carbon emissions, uh, because if we move towards solar powered irrigation pumps, of course, definitely the diesel pumps goes out, the electric pumps goes out and the carbon emission will be reduced. But since we are providing an option where farmers can now have a reliable source to run their irrigation pumps for a longer hour, in some areas, the water abstraction or groundwater abstraction might also go up. Now, this is a policy which has a noble intention when it comes to reducing the carbon emission. But at the same time, there is an unintended impact that in certain areas, this might, you know, lead to resource depletion, water resource depletion. So this is what, you know, we are trying to address through our work that if such policies are in existence, you know, how we can at least make uh, their implementation more coherent. And in the process, can we also convince the policymakers, can we also convince the people who are in charge of implementing these policies, that they also need to revisit some of the guidelines that are existing. We don't want the entire policy to be changed because the policy has really good intentions. But wherever it cut across or it influenced other sector, that is where, you know, we would like to lead a narration, lead a story to be able to convince the largest stakeholder why such guidelines need to be revisited and what benefit it can have, uh, not only in terms of the food security, water security, environment protection, but also in terms of improving the incomes and the livelihoods. And speaking of livelihoods and um, the economic security that comes with this, I want to pick up on one more comment that Dr. Padhi made that I think is relevant to our conversation. Have a listen to this. In addition to all these important and uh, relevant regions in the context of Odisha, I would like to add that uh, it is a matter of equity uh, and justice as well. Uh, it is about the investment in farmers in the upland, especially the tribal areas. So the Odisha Millets Mission is not just a, a technical or technocratic intervention. It is uh, deeply driven uh, by the ideas of equity and justice to ensure the sustainable uh, futures for its indigenous uh, communities or the tribal people. So the state Dr. Padi works in is um, very diverse, just like a lot of our other states in India, not just in terms of topography and geography, but also the kinds of uh, areas that people live in, work in, grow crops in, the kind of water they have access to, but also, again, in terms of socioeconomic status and their access to all kinds of resources, including government help and the policies that could affect them. Parijat, uh, you work across uh, several areas and also working with women. How important is it for policy to be developed, taking into account the diversity of the stakeholders and the people being impacted on the ground? Uh, it is extremely important uh, to take, uh, take into account this geographic, topographic, as well as social diversities. There may be an um, umbrella ones, umbrella policies, but those need to be adapted based on the local uh, topography, climate, social context, and therefore uh, creating the scope for flexibility and adaptability. Uh, 
which Atishmal also spoke about, uh, it is extremely important. And valuing the local knowledge and traditional practices and learn from those. That is one area I would like to emphasize because uh, often we forget that uh, the communities, those who are living there, they know their area and the climate better than us who are outsiders and thinking uh, for them, quote unquote. Uh, so uh, it is important that we don't forget valuing the local knowledge and take those into account and the traditional practices, uh, the way they used to cope with the um, erratic rainfall or uh, the, uh, adverse uh, weather conditions, uh, the changes in season, deteriorating uh, resources. So uh, that is an important area when we uh, talk about promotion of sustainable land, water and food management practices. And they have to be adapted for each space and location. Right, right. Yes, yes. Same, same structures cannot be made. Uh, the structures which are applicable for uh, the coastal area that cannot be um, made uh, or uh, be feasible in the plateau area. So it has to be adapted. Uh, in. And Engineeringia uh, is a successful example of this flexibility and adaptability in various regions. Uh, and in many cases, uh, some state government actually came up with very innovative ways of working with CSOs and uh, local uh, governance bodies uh, to implement, uh, uh, to adapt MGNRG and uh, implement and uh, work on systems which will improve the uh, sustainable food and uh, land and forest at uh, at. at uh, some places. Interesting. And so Archisman and Nitin, how have you factored in the voices from the grassroots, the people who are affected by these policies into the findings of your report? So if we look at these policies, uh, most of these policies have uh, quite a wide range of inclusion of vulnerable groups, often as direct beneficiaries, but also in many cases as uh, as uh, decision-making, like you reserve 30% has to be represented of a particular marginalized group. So these are already there, which is which is good, which is a good first step. And we sort of say that also in the report. But there is also, I think, two core challenges is sort of, it also requires a lot of capacity building uh, if we expect them to be effective uh, effective participation uh, from the bottom up in decision making. There are very interesting uh, schemes uh, that have trying to address that. One is Atal Bhujal Jojana, which is basically uh, centered around community management of groundwater resources. And what is interesting is its core focus is uh, building capacity of the of the community in terms of uh, through training, through motivation, through sort of mobilization, which typically we generally see in uh, development sector, some CSOs are doing. This policy sort of centralizes that and recognizes uh, groundwater as a common pool resource. So that's a very interesting way of trying to increase uh, uh, community, actual community participation uh, into the scheme. It does not mean that it it does not face its challenges, but what it means is that is required and it has been acknowledged. And I think that's uh, that's one of the that's that's something to look forward to. And another second point I uh, I, I would uh, 
like to point out is the intersectionality of uh, marginalization. I think partly Parijat also mentioned it. I think uh, uh, some schemes take note of it that uh, that there are multiple uh, layers of marginalization that sort of uh, cross cut. Uh, so I think there the the need for more recognition and steps to be taken to sort of address those intersectionality uh, needs to be taken forward. Just very quickly, so uh, I mean I think Arches one has covered it really well. Uh, but Chavi, one thing that I would I, again like to highlight is that social inclusion uh, was one of the uh, you know uh, criteria that we used when we analyzed all the policies, all the national level policies, uh, you know, that we selected uh, for a deep diving. And, uh, you know, it's, it was really heartening to see that how these policies have an inbuilt, uh, you know, mechanism right at the planning stage. Now, what happens is that sometimes, you know, when it is, they get implemented on the ground, you know, there can be uh, some groups, uh, you know, especially marginalized groups, or, uh, you know, those who do not have access to right information, you know, they might be left out, you know, when the policies get implemented. And this is what, you know, we are also trying to address uh, through the work that we are doing. And uh, when, again, I will go back to the deep diving that we are now going to do in two states uh, uh, in India. So there, you know, we are also going to the field and meeting the community itself. Right now, for the national level policy analysis, our stakeholders were still, uh, you know, the people who are uh, framed the policy, who are implementing it. And uh, when I say implementation, also at the local scale, like uh, uh, the village level uh, uh, administrator who are also uh, implementing the policy. But now we would also like to talk to the beneficiaries, you know, what they uh, see that how these policies are implemented, what are the benefits they are driving from it. And whether, you know, the implementation itself is becoming inclusive. So I think these are some additional layers uh, that we'll be covering. And you would be happy to note that these suggestions have come from the policymakers itself. They wanted us to, you know, such, do such deep diving, go and meet the beneficiary and find out what they think about such policies. So I think this is really heartening, uh, you know, to note. Uh, that our work is generating such kind of a interest in the Indian ecosystem as well. Absolutely. Parijat, this must be very welcome news to you as well, because it looks like there are very big challenges for the policy to actually find its uh, way to being implemented at a grassroots level that then benefits the stakeholders. Absolutely. This is a much needed work. And I would say that this is a very welcome first step where uh, when we are starting to think about uh, from the perspective of the quote-unquote beneficiary. But I also would like to um, probably in the later stage uh, where uh, we could actually uh, move from, from uh, looking at them as, a, as beneficiary to uh, more to like an active actor in the whole thing uh, because it is affecting their life. I'm sure uh, as we go forward, this is not a one-off event. and this is probably will be ongoing uh, learning event. So in that sense, uh, in future, probably uh, we'll also have these shifts in our outlook towards those whom are, we are working with. It also seems clear from Dr. Padi's comments at the NPS India report launch that the national and regional governments are receptive to ideas about how policy can be developed. Um, 
But more broadly, Nitin, uh, the council has co-authored this report. Who else do you hope will be reading it? Who should be queuing up for their copy? Uh, thanks, thanks, Savi, uh, for this, uh, uh, you know, asking this query, uh, because uh, many a times, you know, we, we have to find the readers of the work that we do. Uh, I'm happy to state uh, or share with you that uh, during the uh, launch event itself, there was, you know, number of people who wanted the copy of the report. Uh, so we follow uh, a kind of, a, uh, you know, very innovative dissemination styles at the council and as well as at EMI. Uh, so, you know, we were having postcard with a QR link to the report, but many people, they wanted to have the hard copy of the report itself. So, so that, that shows the kind of interest it generated. And I, and I think it will be important I mean, in addition to the policymakers, uh, researchers in the field, the development practitioners, uh, you know, those who are, uh, uh, you know, uh, implementing the policies, uh, those who are uh, also helping government, you know, uh, uh, to, uh, to try and see, uh, you know, what kind of a changes or, or what kind of uh, uh, new layers that can be added to the policy. Uh, students, you know, who, who are uh, uh, at, at doing their master's or maybe doing their PhDs, they would find the framework that we have used very interesting. And uh, the institutions who would like to replicate the same study, same assessment, maybe considering some other states in India, they will also find the framework very useful, uh, you know, to use and this is, I think, a unique kind of a contribution that we also make to the literature. So it is not only stakeholders, but also the theoretical, uh, you know, uh, improvement or the theoretical contribution that we make to the literature is worth mentioning here. Well, that was a fascinating conversation and the perfect way for us to kick off the series. To find out more about what we have coming up in the series, please subscribe to the Policy Pathways podcast. A transcript of today's conversation is also available on our feed. The next podcast in the series will be focusing on Colombia, and that will be arriving on your feeds in early March. It just remains for us to thank Nitin Basi, Archisman Mitra, Parijat Ghosh, and Dr. Arabinda Kumar Padhi for sharing their thoughts with us today. I'm Chavi Sachdev. Studio production for Policy Pathways was by Wild Dog. Music was by Mark Peter Royce. Our series producer was Alan Nickel, and production was by Louisa Chandler Edmund for the International Water Management Institute. Our program editor was Andrew Johnstone. Thank you all for listening and goodbye.